All right, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 8, John chapter 8, for the Bible study exercise, we all know we've been working on some individual chapters in the Gospel of John. Um, we we, we kind of introduced that idea of seven signs, um, and I we will definitely return back to those seven signs and go through some of those chapters that give us those seven signs, the significance of that. Uh, we... We looked at uh, John 5, um, and there, there's a lot more there to explore, but I'm already a week behind because John chapter 8 supposedly was supposed to start last Sunday, uh, but we really didn't get to anything till yesterday. I did just one kind of brief discussion on John 8, so I thought I would use this morning to really see how much more I can dig into it and see how much we can accomplish. We're going to try to do this maybe, I don't know, uh, I got a lot of different ways I want to approach this, but we will see. So, if you have a physical Bible and you look at John chapter eight, if you ha- if you if you're using a physical Bible, do you notice anything about the text or anything in regards to it in your physical Bible when you look at John chapter eight? Anything that should make you stop and go, wait, what's going on here? Oh, there's a little note. There's a little note, and what does that note say? All right, very good. This Bible says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53, to John chapter 8, verse 11. I don't know if you have in your electronic Bible, uh, but there are, most would argue, John 8, verses 1 to 11, does not belong in your Bible. It doesn't belong there. There's lots of debate over this. So I, in some ways, it's frustrating to have to deal with this, but because so many Christians don't understand this, that we have to at least deal with it briefly. I would like to just deal more with the text itself, but we're going to have to deal with a little bit of these issues. All right. So here's what we're going to do. All right. And, and, and you should know this, but these verses, 1 through 11, or actually 753 to 811, is a source of much controversy, mainly because a lot of people don't believe that they belong there. Many Bible scholars have concluded that the story of, uh, that's found in John 8, 1 through 11 was not originally written by John. Now, some say it wasn't originally written by John. It was written by someone else, and it shouldn't be in John, but it should be somewhere else. Some say it shouldn't even be anywhere in the entire Bible. It should just be removed completely and not even discussed or talked about. Uh, specifically, this is what some say, John seven fifty three and John 8, 11, appear to have been added several centuries after John wrote his gospel. Most English translations today acknowledge this view by enclosing this section in brackets to indicate its suspect origins. There are several clues that have led scholars to this conclusion. Number one, the vast majority of original manuscripts of John's gospel locks this passage. So if you go to early manuscripts of John, guess what's missing? John 7:53 to 8:11, right? They're just just not it's just not there. In fact, this passage, according to at least a few sources, doesn't even begin to appear in manuscripts until the 6th century. 6 centuries and then all of a sudden it starts showing up. Right? That was long after the New Testament canon was officially established in the 4th century. Also, many note, the style of writing in this passage differs greatly from John's John's normal style. They say it does not read, and may not be able to see it in the English, but they believe in the Greek. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is not the same style of writing that we have read, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. What just happened? And so that made people go, something's not right here. Something is not right here, right? Um, In fact, it reads much more like one of the synoptic gospel writers. They say it reads more like what you would find in Matthew, Mark, or, and I'll just go ahead and give you a clue, Luke. Because a lot of people believe this belongs in the gospel of Luke. It does not belong in the gospel of John. That's the argument that it actually belongs. It's just in the wrong book. We we can talk about that as we move forward. Um, 
and its placement at this point in John's 8 chapter. May, now, now, th- now, we'll see if we agree with this or don't agree with this. Some believe that when you read John 7, and then all of a sudden you get to 8, 1 through 11, and then you start verse 12, that it just seems out of place. There's lots of arguments about this, right? So let's do this. Go to John 7. We'll, we'll play along with this and see how this works. Go to John 7. Let's start in verse 45. All right? John 7, verse 45. Tell, if, say amen when you're there. All right? John 7, verse 45. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Are thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went into his own house. Now jump to 8.11, or 8.12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, many people believe that if you go from John 7, maybe you should skip verse 53, because I don't believe verse 53 belongs. If you go from 7.52 to 8.12, do you feel that that just flows naturally and it's no big deal, it's no problem? Okay, all right. Now, this is what I love about Christianity, because... Nobody agrees on this, okay, right? Some believe it fits perfectly, and others are like, that makes absolutely no sense, okay? Some say it, some say it, fit, it flows perfectly, and others are like, absolutely not. So now, immediately once that starts happening, what do we know what we're dealing with? We're dealing with strong opinions, right? Now, it would be interesting. It would be interesting. Now, I'm not saying that this should matter, but it would be interesting... Those who read all the time, those who read constantly, they're reading book after book after book after book after book after book after book. How many people who read constantly would be like, this makes no sense, and how many of those who don't read all the time thinks it makes perfect sense? It would be interesting to know the reading, not level, but the reading amount. All right? So does most here think it flows perfectly? If it goes 752 to 812. Now we do have, well, well, all right. Okay, maybe. All right. All right, so it seems like this church, so for everyone listening online, most of the people here seem to be thinking that it fits perfectly. All right. I've got other commentaries who are like, this is the, mo- this is the most broken thing I've ever read in my life. There's no way this works, right? So it just depends on, on your, your thinking. The, the one, one article states it this way. Its placement at this point in John's uh, eighth chapter makes for an awkward interruption in John's narrative. If you jump from John 7.52 directly to John 8.12, the narrative flows seamlessly. So they go with, hey, it fits seamlessly, but it, it seems at least most, a lot of you thought it flows seamlessly. That this this source thinks it flows seamlessly. However, I can't remember. I have a co- commentary around here somewhere. They're like, it it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. This has to, this story has to be there. This story has to be there. In fact, so um, it. In fact, let me see here. Well, no, that's the wrong. If I, I thought I had the commentary, I probably left it in the library. I probably should go get it, but I won't. But if I, I, I just. Just, you're going to have to take my word for it, since I, have the, uh, I left it in the library. That others were like, no, 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 no. If you remove this story, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. All right? So, let's do this. 
The section that comes before it, John 7, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do, I always find it funny when we get into these situations. And John 7, in fact, if you go back, um, if you go back to John 7, I think you start in, where does it all, okay, if you go to verse 32, right? John 7, 32, everybody there? Who, get, who, gets, who shows up here in John 7, 32? Pharisees. They heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them. So Jesus begins to have this conversation with them, right? Okay. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people and because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. There's, a, there's some serious conflict going on between Jesus and whom? Pharisees. Verse 45. Then came the officers to the chief priest and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you brought him? So, so they're having, so they're still, they're, the Pharisees are still showing up at verse 45. Agreed? Verse 47, Pharisees showing up. Verse 48, Pharisees showing up. Yes? Okay. Um, and then the, the conversation going. Then verse 53. Every man goes home. Yes? So it seems that the conflict is over, right? Agreed? Okay. Now, if you remove 53, if you remove verse 53, well, about every man going home, and you jump down to 812, then it would, it would fit a little bit because it says, then spake Jesus again unto them. Well, wait a minute. Is Jesus involved in the conversation in verses 45 the 52? He's not. So, aren't there people talking about Jesus? Jesus is not involved here, right? So then when Jesus, all of a sudden in verse, 50, in ver, in verse 12, when it says, and then Jesus spoke again to them, that doesn't seem to flow seamlessly to me. That's my, that's my argument. The, the preceding section, Jesus is not involved. So why would in verse 12, it says, and again, Jesus spoke unto them, that doesn't flow seamlessly. So I have a, I have a problem saying it flows seamlessly. That's, my per, that's just me from my reading. Now, if you disagree, that's, you feel free to tell me you disagree. But I'm just saying that it seems weird that it says Jesus spoke again unto them when the previous section, Jesus is not involved in the conversation. Okay, so, so, we, so we agree that maybe it doesn't flow so seam, seamlessly. Okay, I, I think it's a little broken up. Uh, that's, that's, a my, that's my agreement, all right? That's my agreement, okay? Now, if we add in, if we add in John chapter 8, if we add it in, all right, so do we have a conflict between 53 and chapter 8, verse 1? No, there's no conflict. They go home, and then what happens? Ch chapter 8, verse 1. And then Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came. Like, in, in, there's no problem here, right? Even if you remove 53, there's no problem, right? Because the previous section are people having a conversation, right? Like, if you ever read, if you read a novel or if you watch a movie, it's showing what's going on here. Meanwhile... They're having a conversation, and then the scene cuts, and where's Jesus? Chapter 8, verse 1. He went into the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he comes again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. There, there's, no, there's no conflict, right? I don't see there's a conflict there. Agreed? Okay, so let's just make that very clear. Here's what some, here's what some argue here. This is what some try to say, all right? I don't think it flows seamlessly. I think that's a major problem, all right? But here's what they, they say, all right? Um, uh, like most scholars, 
Uh, I don't, this, this person says, I don't believe that there's any reason to doubt the story's authenticity. So what some people say is it doesn't belong here, but it's an authentic story that, that should be somewhere in the Bible. The argument is somewhere that it belongs somewhere else, only because it's not in any of the early manuscripts of John, that it was somewhere else. This is what they argue. This, this one source believes Luke wrote the account as uh, this account as a part of the gospel under the inspiration of the Spirit. The writing style matches his style closely, and it features a woman in distress, which is a favorite theme of Luke. And the events would fit nicely into the narrative of Luke chapter 22. Look at Luke chapter 22 and see if you think it fits perfectly there. Now, it's just, 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 just pure speculation here, but I thought this is an interesting perspective. I'm more interested in the story than, than all of this, but we have to at least deal with it. Because in most churches, you don't deal with this, and then someone finds out and goes, wait a minute, what happened? I didn't know there was a problem. Look at Luke 22. You can just skim it. Instead of me reading the whole chapter, how many verses are in chapter 22? 71. Yeah, there's no way I can read all 71. We would be done. That would be the end of our sermon today. Okay, Bobby questions where, whether it fits there. What seems to be the focus on, on these 71 verses? Okay. okay, a plot against Jesus? Okay. It would have to be early in the chapter, don't you agree? Okay, what's verses 1 through 6? Okay. Okay, you don't like Luke 22? All right, yeah, I didn't like it. Now, remember, at first, I thought it was seamless as well. Okay, so are you going to change your mind on me now halfway through? Okay, all right, Bobby hasn't changed his mind. Bobby is staying committed to this. I, I, I don't know if Luke 22 is where it goes. I, I have a hard time. Um, th- this, this is how they, I, I don't know. They say it fits nicely into the narrative. But this is also the one that said that John 7, 52 to 8, 12 flows seamlessly. And it's just no way that flows seamlessly. It is some messed up disconnect in my mind. In my mind, it's disconnected, all right? So this is what they say, all right? So why would a scribe or a copyist move the story out of its proper place in Luke and then put it over in John's gospel? This is, the, this is their speculation. They said, in a word, convenience. When the biblical canon was set, chapter and verse annotations were added to each book of Scripture. Right. That, that, that we all do know chapter, verses, all of that comes much later. Much later. We all know that. Later, scribes endeavored to record entire books or at least complete chapters of Scripture on a single scroll. That would make sense. Paper, the ability to write. They would try to get as much on one scroll as they could, right? Because that was, to have those materials was not always easy to have. Does that make sense? Right? If you're trying to copy something and you've only got seven pages left in your notebook, you're going to try to write probably as small and get as much in it as possible. Does that make sense? Okay, everybody understands that they copied copies of copies, right? Everybody understands how that works, right? Okay, do, do we have the originals? No. What do we have? Copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Okay, so we do. And so in the copying process, what happens? Textual variants, right? Are those variants always significant? No, sometimes they're what? Word change, word order, right? Spelling, right? Those kinds of things. And then sometimes we, we come into conflict with what? We're like, what just happened here? Now, the minute that happens, textual criticism comes in, and they have to try to figure out what is the correct rendering. Right? And when we say a variant, the variant means you got one manuscript that reads this way, you got another manuscript that reads this way, and you have another manuscript that reads this way, and then the biblical scholarship has to come in using certain criteria to determine which rendering is most likely the closest to the original. Now, people don't like to realize that that's the the truth. That's the truth. 
That's just the reality of how it works. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just the way it works. Okay? Now, and, and guess what? What can, what can make this problem go away? If we didn't have so many manuscripts. The fewer manuscripts, we would have no, less variants. But then we would have, then some would could argue, well, you don't have a lot of manuscriptual evidence. So it's like a catch-22, right? If you don't have a lot of manuscript evidence, people go, well, then how do you even know that's close to the original? When you've got hundreds or thousands of manuscripts, you can say, well, we feel more assured, but then you end up with more variants. It's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Does that make sense? All right. So this is what they, they're arguing. The reason this possibly was moved was convenience. There was no chapters and verses, and they were trying to, in most cases, endeavor to write everything on a single scroll. Luke's gospel was assigned some of the longest chapters in the New Testament, while John's gospel was assigned some of the shortest. And you can see, Luke chapter 22 is how many verses? 71. It's what, a long chapter, is it not? I don't think any of John's chapters are 71 verse. I don't think there's a, a 71 verse chapter in the Gospel of John. All right? Luke has some long chapters. All right, so this is what they, they argue. Since Scripture was written on parchment scrolls that came in fixed length, a copyist may have been running short on parchment, so he decided to trim Luke's chapter to make it fit. But not wanting to eliminate the material altogether, the copyist added it to one of John's shorter chapters. How many chapter? How many verses are in John eight? John chapter eight is fifty nine. See that? I don't know if that helps. I don't know if that helps. Yes, I, I don't know. I know. I know that's shorter than seventy one. Okay, see, see, there, there's, there you go. So, I don't know. I see. Oh, I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I like. I don't know if I like that idea or not. All right. Um, yeah, and so we we can go through all the the different arguments there. I don't know if I agree with any of that. The put the bottom line. I don't know if I agree with any of that. I, I, here's what I know. Most believe John eight doesn't belong there. I don't. I. I I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge there's major problems, but here's what I know. It's in every English translation on the earth. <laughs> okay? It, it's there, right? So, okay, so what we're going to do is we're just going to say it's there. Here's what I would not do. Right? Here's, here's what I would say. The end of Mark 16. Many believe it doesn't belong there. Right? And many believe John 8 doesn't belong there. Here's what I would say. Anytime we've got lots of scholarship saying, we don't know if it should be there, what, this is my rule of thumb. Don't derive a major doctrine from it. Don't, don't make it a foundational scripture for a said doctrine. This story of the woman caught in adultery is not the foundation for any doctrine, correct? If it was, then I would be hesitant. Does that make sense? This is Jesus dealing with, what, what, what do we have in John 8 that is consistent with what, what we have in the rest of the New Testament? What do we have going on? Just look at John 8 really quick. Okay, well, let's just, let's start with from the beginning, all right? Jesus, at, at the beginning, John chapter 8, 1, Jesus is the Mount of Olives, and then he goes to the temple. Does that seem contradictory or contrary to anything else we find in the Gospels? Jesus has gone to the temple multiple times, yes? All right, we don't have a problem there. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching. Is that a problem? No. Next, we have scribes and Pharisees. Jesus constantly dealing with scribes and Pharisees? Yes, he was doing that in chapter 7. All right, so that that fits perfectly, right? Okay, are they trying to find a way to trap Jesus? Yes. Is that uh, somewhere out of the blue, different than from everything else that we've read? No. Does Jesus have to deal here with someone and possibly sin? Yes. Is that an issue that Jesus has stayed away from up to this point? No, he's dealt with other issues regarding people and their sins. Yes? Right? So I don't see anything out of the blue here. Do you? All right. So because of that, then I don't feel worried about looking at the text, if that makes sense. I don't feel worried about looking at the text. Everybody okay with that? All right. So now let's dig into the text itself. That took a lot longer than I wanted. 
But here we go. Everybody ready? All right. John chapter 8, verse 1. We have 11 verses to try to get through. All right, here we go. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, we don't know exactly how many people, but most likely it was a pro- pro- probably a pretty good crowd. He's inside the temple. The Jews would go. Why? The Jews would be much more likely a lot of times to go to the temple because inside the temple, for the most part, they were kind of left alone from whom? Rome. Rome kind of let them do what they wanted in the temple, right? In the temple, you could kind of get, they just kind of left that alone because they didn't want to get themselves involved in a religious war, right? So they kind of let them do that. So the Jews would have, you know, it, whenever it's time to go to the temple, that would have been a place to go. So there's probably a quite a few people present. Then here shows up. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery and when they had set her in the midst. Now let's stop right here. All right, so scribes and the Pharisees show up and they have someone with them, right? They have a woman. The woman has been caught in adultery. And they do what with her? Sit her in the middle of everyone, right? So this is a very publicly humiliating situation, right? Clearly they bring the woman and they want the woman to be seen by whom? Everybody. They want this, they want a public spectacle here, right? They want this to be public everywhere. They want everyone to witness this. Now, we can immediately, we realize something, a couple of things, right? What's missing? The man. The man is missing. They don't bring the man along. They don't bring the man. All right? Now, this is true and... (laughs) This gets, for some reason, this gets forgotten both ways, all right? Let's always remember, whenever adultery occurs, it requires how many individuals? Two. For so weird reason, sometimes it's always like, well, men always commit adultery. Well, I've never seen men committing adultery by themselves. Right? Now, if the man's committing adultery with someone who doesn't know that he's married, then okay, you could say that that's different because the woman doesn't know. But in most cases, if the other person knows, it takes two. So some people put the focus on the man. In this case, the focus is on the woman. It's always weird, right? You could say culture. That's a good, that's a, 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 you could put culture is involved here. In this particular case, something else is involved. But the bottom line is it takes two. It takes two. Right. And but and and you're going to immediately realize something is missing. Something is missing. And there's a reason something is missing. Okay. now they says they caught her in the act. Now, what's the chances they just stumbled upon a woman committing adultery? That seems like an odd doesn't seem like an odd case. It, it, yeah, yeah, it seems odd. Do, do we all agree? Like, what, were the Pharisees just walking along? And you're like, I, I just, like, how did you just stumble upon this act? Right? So that raises some questions, right? Right? Now, we can get all kinds of conspiratorial, but I think it's, the text almost drives us to ask some questions, right? I'm not saying we should do too much with this, but we can ask some questions. One, maybe... They were caught in the act because the Pharisees knew the guy who was committing the act. They knew who he was. They knew what he was doing. And they were kind of waiting for it. Or this woman could possibly be a woman who maybe commits this act on a regular basis. And so they knew that this is what she does maybe for a living. Possibly. Either, they had to know what was going on. I mean, they cut right in the middle of the act. I mean, that's what the text, the text drives that point home, does it not? How does the NIV read? Yeah, caught in adultery, okay? Now, the King James says caught in the... In the very act. Okay. 
Okay, and the act. All right, so the, the, both, all of them trans- clearly indicate that she was caught in the act. All right, everyone catches this. So I think immediately you realize something's up here. Something's up, right? It just seems, especially because we know what they're getting ready to do. This whole thing just seems like they knew, they knew where to go to catch someone in the act. Okay? And they, knew, they knew where Jesus was, and they, it, it just seems the whole thing has got, is sketchy all the way around. The whole thing is sketchy all the way around. Right? Can we agree there? All right. So, they set her in the midst, and they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. All right? Now, listen carefully. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Look at verse 6. This they said, tempting him. All right. Now, right there is the key of the whole text. They said this tempting him. That, that's what you want to circle. That's the whole point here. The whole point of this entire text is that they, what, what, what do these Pharisees not care about? They don't really care about the law. What else do they not care about? They don't care about the woman. What else do they not care about? Adultery. Okay. Well, they don't care about anything except what? Trapping Jesus. Trapping Jesus. And that, that is, oh, there's so much there that is so troublesome. But let's start with this, okay? Let's just go with, let's just look at a couple of passages so that we get an understanding of what's going on here, because I think it's important, all right? Uh, first, let's do this. Um, yeah, that, let, let's do this. Go to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, just so that we can see this. All right, everybody there? Leviticus 20, 10, what do we read? And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. That's what the law actually says. All right? Okay? They, they only showing up with a woman. So already we know something is up. We already know they're, they're playing some games. Um, however, Leviticus 20.10 does not say how they should be put to death. They immediately go with stoning. And they may go with stoning for a, couple, for a couple of reasons. But there was other ways of possibly putting to death in Jewish tradition. One was strangulation. They could strangle them to death, which is kind of disturbing, right? There was other uh, situations here. But this is the law they're primarily referencing, all right? Does that make sense? As, as some would say here, um, the, the Pharisees mistreated the penalty in the law concerning adultery. The law says that the adulterers and the nation of Israel deserve death, but it doesn't say that they must be stoned specifically. In fact, historically, the method of execution for the offense had been handled in various ways. For the longest time, it was strangling, typically how they did it. Later in the time of Ezekiel, according to some sources, it was become, it, it was, uh, become stripping the offenders naked in public, stoning them by a crowd, and then cutting their bodies to pieces with a sword. After the adulteress happened to be, if the adulteress happened to be the daughter of a priest, she was burned to death. These penalties were so severe because the crime was seen as obviously being extremely severe. All right? So there was different ways of doing so. But they're not really worried about that, are they? They're not really worried about that in any way, shape, or form. What are they worried about? Trapping Jesus. Trapping Jesus. All right, so, go back to John 8. There's more here we could read, and there's, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that we could look at as well, but for now, I want us to just get to this. All right, so, what is the trap 
do you think that they're laying for Jesus? What is the trap here? What do you think the trap is? They, they, they bring the woman, right? We already know that everything up to this point is, is, is suspicious all the way around, right? Clearly this woman is nothing more than a pawn, pawn and their religious game, and they're t- going to trap Jesus. So how are they trying to tempt Jesus or trap Jesus? The King James says tempt, the NIV says trap, right? Well, how are they trying to trap him? Okay, right. If he says don't kill her, don't stone her. He violates what? The law of Moses. All right? If he says stone her or kill her, who could he be in trouble with? Rome. There we go. Okay, there's the second issue. Now he could be in trouble with Rome because the Jews were not supposed to be putting anyone to death. All right? So that could get him in trouble with Rome. Third, who's the third? What's the third thing he could get in trouble with? So he could be in trouble with the law of Moses. He could be in trouble with Rome. And what's the third thing he could end up in conflict with? No, nobody knows. Okay. Well, you, you know, nobody could think of a possible third problem that would arise from this. If he says stone the woman. What's the third problem he has? Say it, Bobby. The people, right? Because now he just looks like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? He just looks like them. He's, he's kind of developed a crowd for what? His compassion, his mercy, his love, right? Now he would just be looking like the Pharisees so that could get the people to turn against him. So they think they got the perfect trap, right? Either he's going to violate, he's going to go against the law of Moses, which they can use religiously to basically condemn him as a false teacher to show that he's not the Messiah. Or they can get him in trouble with Rome. Hey, this man's trying to get people killed. Or he can turn him against the people because then they're like, hey, this guy that you think is full of mercy, love, and compassion is just like us. He wants the woman killed. So it seems to be the perfect trap, right? Seems to be the perfect trap. And so then we get to this interesting account of what happens here, right? I'm trying to go quickly through this because of time. So then what happens? They said, so this they said, tempting him, but they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Right? Now, even in the King James, uh, as though he heard them not is in italics, meaning it's not even in whatever manuscript that they, the King James was using. This was added. How does the uh, NIV read? Yeah, as though, as though he heard them not is not in the NIV, right? Because it's not in any manuscripts, okay? That's completely added, all right? But the reason it's probably at is they're trying to try to figure out what in the world Jesus is doing riding on the ground, right? They're probably like, wait a minute, this is a pretty serious situation, yes? Can't you kind of feel the tension of the situation? Now, for us, we're, we're removed by it by thousands of years, so we may not feel the tension, but this would kind of be an awkward situation. Here's this woman who's been caught in the act. She's just thrown in the middle of everyone, and you're all standing around going, what is going on, what is going on, what is going on? Ooh, they just ask Jesus a question. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? What is he going to do? And Jesus almost simply does what? Ignores them. Now, everybody focuses on what he's writing on the ground, and there's all kinds of speculation all day on what he is, and we can go all day. I, but I think the point is, what, is he, what does he seem to be doing here? He seems to be disassociating himself with them, right? And it's interesting that he stoops down, which is kind of odd, right? Like, I think even from, we we don't know why he's writing. We don't know what he's writing. There we can speculate. But the stooping down does seem to at least give some indication that he's trying to do something, right? He's, He's trying to indicate something. And what do you think he's trying to indicate? The King James translators try to indicate what he's doing because they added in italics. 
that he's, he's what? Disassociating himself with them. In a sense, they're standing and Jesus is stooping down. In other words, they are standing in condemnation. Jesus, in a sense, almost like he's stooping down, instead of standing in condemnation, he is identifying himself mainly with the woman who is guilty. Right? In a sense, she's there in the midst. Now, she could be standing. She could be just laying on the ground. But Jesus seems to stoop down to say, I'm not standing with these accusers. I'm not standing with the ones condemning. Right? He's disassociating himself with them. He's ignoring them. Correct? All right? And then... um, So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them. Now notice, now they start talking to him again. Now he stands back up, which is kind of interesting, yes? They bring the accusation, he just kneels down, ignoring them. They talk, and then what does he do? Verse 7, he stands back up, and then what does he say to them? He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, what what do you think he's possibly referencing here? Well, the the, him without sin, we don't really know what he's maybe referencing here. But we do think Deuteronomy 17.7 comes into play here. Deuteronomy 17.7. Deuteronomy 17, 7, that we think is at least possibly in play here. All right, go to verse 6, Deuteronomy 17, 6. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. All right? So in other words, this kind of goes with a, a constant biblical theme, right? The constant biblical theme is you need how many witnesses? Two to three, right? Even with an elder in the church, are you supposed to take an accusation? Uh, an elder from a church? Other, you should be two or three witnesses. This is how it's supposed to work, right? Okay? Now, that doesn't mean if you're the pastor and someone brings an accusation and you just say, well, unless you have two or three, we're not going to deal with it. Now, that thing is you have to just... Well, probably just acknowledge you're wrong and just deal with it, but okay. Verse 7, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death. Who are the people who are supposed to be putting him to death? The witnesses. And afterwards, the hands of all the people. So they shall be put the evil away from among them. So who are the first people to, to, to lay their hands, whether it's strangulation or whatever they're going to do? It's to be the witnesses. So, in this case, who are the people who are supposed to do the stoning? The Pharisees, because they're the witness against her. Right? So therefore, Jesus is, in a sense, making a reference to this. You're, not only are they the accusers, they are the witnesses. Right? Because they caught her in the act. Right? So, Jesus then, utilizing this concept, knowing they're the ones to do it, what does he say? Go back to John 8. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. In other words, who's supposed to be throwing the stones? You guys. And if you're without sin, go for it. Now, this leads to lots of speculation here about how to read this, right? Okay. Now, we got to think about all the implications here. All right? What is one possible implication here that would be very, 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 very difficult for our world to operate? What would be a principle that could be derived from this that would make it very impossible for our world to operate? Oh, come on. Everyone here should know what, what, what this, should, this could lead to a big problem. You're all parents, Right? You cannot uphold any standard unless you're without sin. 
Have any of you ever punished your children and you're, you're still sinners? Have you in many cases punished your children for the very things you did, have done? Have you in many cases punished your children for the very attitudes that you have? Okay, that, that, that leads to lots of problems, does it not? That leads to lots of problems. How do we apply this, right? Now, not only do we apply it in the home, how do we apply it in the church? Can you church discipline anyone? What would be the standard? Well, not two or three witnesses, but he who is without sin. That would be a problem. Because can you find anyone in the church who is without sin? No. So how does this work? See, everyone loves to preach this, but no one ever thinks of the implications of this, right? This would lead to some serious implications. There would be no judge on earth that could ever pass a sentence. So what do we do with this? Oh, come on, y'all have all read this. You, you don't need me here. I'm, I, I'm just, I, I just facilitate. I don't, you don't need me. You all own Bibles. You've had to do something with this in your life. When Jesus says, hey, those without sin cast the first stone, how have you handled that in your life all these years of being a Christian? You've had to do something with it. Okay, all right, good. I like Bobby's answer. Okay, right. But I ignored it. That's good. I like that. I like that honesty. Probably nobody gave it much thought, did you? Right, because, because I mean, come on, let's be honest. Do, how many times do you pass judgments on people? We all make judgments. We make judgments every day, right? Even if you say, judge not lest she be judged, you make a judgment because you're determining that they're judging. I, I, hate, I, I hate when people do that on social media. Judge not lest she be judged. Well, you just judged my judging. <laughs> Stop talking to me until you can figure out logical fallacies, okay? I know logical fallacies in Christianity. The two shall, shall never, ever deal. I mean, yeah, Christians don't want to ever deal with logical fallacies. It's a logical fallacy for me to look at Bobby and say, judge not lest you be judged because I'm judging that he's judging. Therefore, I would be guilty of the very thing I'm telling him to not do. That's just so, it's so ridiculous. I don't know how people can't figure that out, but all right. So in this case, we would have to go, well, wait a minute. How does this work? Because I don't know about you. You've probably, did you judge anyone this week? Most likely. Oh, come on. You made some judgment. Were you without sin? All right. So what do we do with this? Come on, talk to me. What do we do with this? What are our options? Y'all want to go home today? You've got to come up with some answers. Okay. Right. Bobby just said we ignored it. At least he gave one. Come on, what do we do with this? What are our options? Do what? Oh, okay. Well, true. We're not under Pharisaical law, but, you know, that, that's true. Well, I'm just asking, what do we do with this principle? Okay, true. Right, but I'm saying, what do we do with the concept that him who is without sin cast the first stone? Do, how, how far do we take this principle? <laughs> we should all leave the stone somewhere else. Okay, that's good. Okay, right. So I think we, we can all agree that we obviously, none of us take it to that. Even the church does not operate under this standard that he is without sin, cast the first stone, because we make judgments all the time. All right, so clearly, we know we don't do that with it. So if we don't do that with it, what do we do with it? Okay. Right, okay. Right. So the Victory Baptist Church's answer for everyone listening to the internet is we have decided we're just going to ignore this passage because it makes it. All right, that concludes our service for the day. Everyone go have a good lunch. Okay, no. All right, we got, we got to do something here. We got to do something with it. What do you think possibly, maybe there's a different way of interpreting this? I'm just going to throw it out. I just, you know, I love to throw out ideas. 
I love hypotheses. I love theses, right? Okay, well, good, good question. He who is without sin, meaning possibly, could Jesus be referring to the fact, hey guys, you're not without sin because you're not hand, you didn't handle this in a biblical way. Right? So maybe that the sin he's referring to there is the sin in how they handled this. Second sin he could be referring to is, come on guys, we know why you're here. You want to kill me. <laughs> right? Okay. Like, you're showing up, but you're not worried about adultery. You're trying to kill an innocent person. I don't know, God in the flesh. Oh, could there be a third? Possible? Commentary, commentary, commentaries are somewhat di- divided on this. Is it possible? Hey, you want, you want to stone this woman for adultery? Hey, the person who's not guilty of adultery can. Is he possibly referring to the sin of adultery? What do y'all think? Oh, okay. Y'all don't like that one. Y'all don't like that one, huh? I thought y'all would love that one. Does that not fit with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus say about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount? Nobody remembers the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it's kind of like a big deal. Okay, okay, okay. Nobody remembers what he says about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody? There we go. If you even look at a woman with lust, you already committed adultery. Could Jesus be saying, oh, if you're, if, you're free of, if you're free of adultery, by all means, go ahead and stone her. In other, words, in other words, what I'm trying to say, is it possible that what Jesus is referencing here is not a general rule for everything, but is it specifically to these people in this historical setting? Hey guys, if you're without sin, go ahead, kill her. But as Bobby's pointed out, there's probably already committing a sin in the fact that they're not even handling this in a biblical way. They didn't even bring the man. Secondly, the only reason they're here is for what reason? To get me killed. Third, there's a high probability that they have already committed adultery. I mean, obviously they caught them in the middle of the act. How long did they watch before they decided to break into the room? Right? I mean, you got some questions. Something's going on there. They caught her in the act. Something weird is going on, right? And who knows? Some, some may even argue that this woman was a harlot. Right? And, and I think there's some, uh, in fact, I think I may have an explanation to why some believe she's a harlot. Let me see if I have it. And if she is, oh, that raises some serious questions, does it not? I think you see where I could possibly be going with this. Right? Uh, See if I can find where, I think I have it, maybe, maybe it's not in this. Uh, see here. See if I can find it in this commentary, maybe in a different commentary. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's here. But some, because I think they say that there's a different penalty for the woman who was married, right, versus a woman who is a harlot. And, I, oh, I don't remember which commentary. I'll have to look that up. But the, the point is, is that, uh, yeah, I don't want to sit there and try to read, read all of it. Because, but there's, there's a possible idea that maybe this woman was a harlot. And if she was a harlot, well, that, what, what could that be implying? Those who are without sin, cast the first stone. Those who have not had relations with her. No, in other words, they caught her in the act. Almost everyone seems to agree that they knew what this, I mean, they knew something about the woman, right? The woman is a pawn. They didn't bring the man. 
Some could argue the man was possibly a Pharisee. Right? And they just needed to catch her in the act. What better way to catch her in the act than one of the Pharisees themselves using her services, and then they catch her in the act. There's a lot of speculation in how this all went down. Okay? In other words, however it went down, it went down in a what? A very, uh, we, can, we can all agree there's something suspect going on here, yes? All right. So when Jesus says, hey, he is without sin, cast the first stone, that and, and primarily there's a lot of possible sins that he's referencing here, right? They clearly handled this all in a wrong, they could have set the whole thing up. Clearly, they're sinful. Secondly, they don't care about the woman. They don't care about the law of Moses. All they care about is getting Jesus killed. Clearly, that's a sinful action, right? Don't murder. That's still, I think it's still a scripture, right? Okay, yes. Third, there's a high probability, whether, especially according to Jesus' standard, they've all committed adultery. I hate to break it to you, every man in this room has committed adultery. No, no amens, no amens. Okay, it's true. Right? Oh, and everyone in this room has committed murder. Okay? Yes? Because we can be guilty of an act without ever committing the act. Yes? Okay? So, so clearly, Jesus shows that they're guilty. Go, go ahead, kill them if you are without sin. Now, how do we apply that to your life and my life? That's where it gets questionable. We can, clear, we can clearly leave it in this historical setting. Hey, in this one situation, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. But it raises questions about how we then are to conduct ourselves. I wanted to go th- with a different direction with this. Uh, and I kind of hinted at where I wanted to go yesterday. But since we're out of time, I'm just going to stay right here. Because now it comes down to a very important question for all of us. Do we just leave this as this is Jesus referencing them and this historical setting and this has no principle for us? And, and that's a little bit easier to do, right? Jesus was just looking at them. If you want to kill someone, go ahead, but you've got to be without sin. But if we take that as a principle, that leads us to lots of questions about how we are to conduct ourselves. We clearly, we don't apply this to civil law, right? Because then no judge could, no jury. Have you ever been on a jury? I've been on a couple now, right? In both, all cases. Uh, no, we found, I found one innocent. One was innocent and the other one was guilty. I think I went with two different verdicts, okay? So, uh, so, so, but guess what? If I, if I found someone guilty, I mean, the, fir- the first person I found that we found guilty was because he tried to stab, so- he stabbed someone to death at a club here in Abilene. Or not to death, he stabbed them. I almost died. Okay? But it was a violent crime. Okay? Well, guess what? I've never committed that act. But in my mind, I've probably stabbed a whole lot of people. I mean, I make the joke every time. Anytime I drive through Tuscola, my mind says, stop and burn that school to the ground. Because that's how much I hated my ex- life there. I've never burned it to the ground, but in my mind, oh, I've burned it down thousands of times, okay? I've carried out all kinds of revenge fantasy in my mind. So guess what? I would be killed. So who was I to sit on a jury? So clearly we don't apply it to that. Can we all agree? Clearly you don't apply it to parenting. Right? Right? You probably don't even apply it to your marital disputes. Right? The next time my wife gets mad at me, I'm going to be like, hey, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. I'm probably going to get hit upside the head with a rock. Okay? Right? Do you apply it that way? Oh, come on. Wait till your kids do that to you. The next time you get mad at their kids, they're like, hey, 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 he who is without sin. Is that going to stop you? All right, so we've already determined where are the ways we don't apply this? Civil. Home. All right, where's the third place we don't, we don't follow this? All right, we'll say work. We'll say work, okay? All right, fourth. 
Like if you've ever been a boss, you probably fired people for things you've been guilty of. All right, here's a, so where's the fourth area we don't apply it? Church. Do we apply it that way in church? Have you ever been in a church that did church discipline? Has anybody ever disciplined for the very things that you've been guilty of? No? You've never been guilty of any of the things you've disciplined someone for in a church? Okay. Okay. And it was false teaching? You never believed in a false teaching ever in your Christian life? Oh, come on. I bet you your theology has changed a lot. There's probably things you believe now that you didn't believe then. Either So you either believe what you believed in the past was false... Or you believe now that what you believe now is false? Have we not all believed something that's false to some level at some point in our Christian life? So, we don't apply it to the church. What do we do with this? What's our options here? But the other interpretations lead to the same problem, right? Because Jesus is saying, if you're without sin, we do know that they committed sins. They're guilty of sin. We can all agree that they're guilty of sin right before they get ready to stone this woman. Can we not agree? We all know that they're guilty, right? Of setting her up, whatever they're doing. Something doesn't make sense there. Clearly, they're guilty in using the woman simply to try to kill Jesus. And clearly, they're mo- well, we know they're guilty of adultery, at least in the heart. We know that because yeah, that's just the reality of life, okay? I'm not excusing it, but it's the reality of life. So we know they're guilty. Now, we either leave it right there. This is just Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and there is no application that goes beyond it. The minute we say, no, this applies to us, and somehow nobody here can tell me how we apply it. Because you've all agreed, we don't apply it civilly. We don't apply it in the home. We don't apply it at work. And we know we don't truly apply it in church. So what do we do with it? Okay, now that's true. It does reinforce the fact that we're all sinners. And the fact that we're all sinners, how should that impact your life and my life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? I don't know. We have to give that some serious thought, do we not? Now, I wanted to get into the whole text, and, but, but sometimes you just stumble upon something and go, wait, this is where we should stay. This is where we should stay. Because this is, I mean, we'll just end here. And I don't have an answer for you, but that's what I want you to focus on. How do you apply this? I don't know if there is a good answer. I don't know. But I do know everyone's guilty. The woman is guilty. There's no question. She's guilty. The men who bring her are guilty. There's a man somewhere in the story who's guilty. The only one I know who's not guilty is is Jesus. So how, how should it do I? And he didn't stone her. Right, true. Good point. Okay. The one who could, didn't. He didn't even condemn her, I know, I know. Which is in, because she's already condemned, right? Which goes back to a proper law and gospel. She doesn't need law, right? Now, he does tell her to go and sin no more, which then we could get into, is this, which use of the law is that? But that's the whole difference. I wanted to get to that, that's what I wanted to get to. I wanted to get to a lot of other things, but I think we're all left with this profound, like, I don't know what I do here. Yeah, and I think, I think, well, I think it does should make us all pause the next time we make a judgment or a condemnation. Now, some people say, well, that's going to lead to you just excusing sin. I don't think anybody is excusing sin. I just got to realize that any sin that I, any sin I condemn, I've probably already committed. Maybe not in the same way, Right? But we've all committed a sin, yes? 
you may commit a sin that I've never committed. And I don't understand why you would commit that sin. But guess what? I probably committed a sin, a sin of similar fashion and a similar way. Now, we'll just leave it there. The only good news is, is I think Sarah said it, is the good news is, and Bobby said it, is the good news is, is that we know we're all sinners, but we're not, we, in Christ Jesus, we don't find condemnation, we find forgiveness. That's the good news. But it does raise some serious questions in how things are supposed to work. And I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. I pray that we leave here this afternoon asking ourselves how we understand the words of your son who says, he who is without sin casts the first stone. I pray we give this serious thought and consideration and it leads to good discussion. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...